My Get Up and Go on SAFM. Influential people doing well in their respective fields. You drive a fast car, Douglas Kruger. John, I was wondering what the link was. I'm guilty as charged, I suppose. Oh, cool. What do you got? Yeah. I, I drive a Jaguar XJ with a 5-litre engine, which means that every time I, I accelerate, it's, it's 100 bucks. So uh, basically, I try and freewheel down here. <laughs> I was going to say, you pass everything except the petrol stations. That, that's exactly correct, yeah. No, I'm not, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not off the speed, but I do love the Jags. They, uh, they really are beautiful cars. What do they say? It's uh, Jeremy Mansfield is a Jag. It's a Jag, it's a Jag. yes. Jag. Everything he does is fine because he's got a Jag. <laughs> and also, um, a, a friend of mine has always said, if somebody drives a Jaguar, they can't rub two pennies together. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not going to just. I'm not going to just my guest. All right, Douglas. Who is Douglas Kruger? John, I'm a I'm a professional speaker and business author. Um, the, the first question people pose is, "Oh, are you a motivational speaker?" Mm. And uh, you know, I, I suppose we do use the term, but I tend to think of myself more as a business and entrepreneurial speaker. Uh, but yeah, my my job is to get up on stage to to share ideas, to inspire businesses and entrepreneurs, and uh, that's what I do for a living. It sounds like one of the best jobs in the world. You get to stand up and tell people how to be better. Very much so, although like many things of that ilk, um, you know, 85% of it is the marketing that we do in the background. Um, And it can be a little bit of a lonely road. It's, um, you you know, you're you're going it all all by yourself. Um, We do have professional speakers associations and ways of uh, of sharing skills and um, just having a little bit of fellowship with others. But, uh, But it can be a bit of a lonely road. Now, that said, it is a phenomenally satisfying thing. Um, and, you know, we tend to forget from time to time that it actually can make a difference in other people's lives. Mm. Here's what I mean by that. We will spend a lot of time focusing on and preparing for presentations, and there's a, a fair amount of stress that goes into the background of it. And every now and again, you'll have someone come up and say, look, I, you know, I tried an idea that you shared, and it led to this business change or that breakthrough, and it, it almost catches you off guard. Uh, and it's a wonderful way to get caught off guard. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely satisfying career. It must be so. Okay, first of all, I want to talk about the PowerPoint presentation. Are you a PowerPoint guru? I've got a book called How to Make Your Point Without PowerPoint. <laughs> so no, <laughs> you do. Okay, uh, we'll talk about the books later on. But so, so you don't sit with the PowerPoint and a whole lot of words behind you, and you just read off the back screen there. No, John. In fact, there's some fascinating research behind that one, and it comes from NASA and the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. And I'll give it to you very quickly. It basically says this: If you put blocks of text up on a screen and you turn your back on the audience and you read. What happens is they can obviously read slightly faster than what you can do so out loud. They will get to the point where psychologically they understand what's happening on the screen. And there's this, this little inner psychology moment where the pin drops and they get it. And what they do then is they tune out and they wait for you to catch up. And what the research says is that they can sustain three, perhaps four such moments of reading ahead and getting it before they tune out entirely. So what the research is telling us is that you have, if you have more than three slides worth of heavy, dense text on the screen, 100% guaranteed you are going to lose that audience. Okay, I'll make a little note there. All right, how does note to self. Where do you where do yeah. you find your material? There's so many speakers out there. There's so many people trying to do what you do. How are mm. you different from everybody else? Okay, so the, the, there are a couple of ways that I look at it. The, the first one is I try to make sure that I know what has been falsified. And that sounds like a terribly boring uh, scientific thing to say. But falsified. What it comes down to, falsified. Right. Is this, you need to be, as a speaker, sufficiently up-to-date with the latest research, the latest thinking, that you know what doesn't work. What you don't want to do is stand up on a stage and share ideas that have been 
disproven. So my little habit on that one, because I, I speak in the business world, is every morning I'll get up and read an article from, say, Harvard Business Review. And um, it's, it's a very good way of just keeping up to speed with what the research is saying, what has been disproven, what's been falsified, uh, and, and what is out there in the, in the realm of thought. Now, that, that's the kind of boring side of things. On the exciting side, as a speaker, we don't, we don't want to sound like a, an intellectual professor. You, you've got to make the content come alive. Mm. And I often say that speakers exist somewhere on this strange balance between the professor and the rock star. <laughs> we, can't, we can't be all rock star because then there's no substance. Yeah. Then you have that dynamic where people walk out of a, a hall or an auditorium and they say, well, that was fantastic, but I can't remember a single thing that he said. And on the far side of that, it so, could be so information-dense that there's no, no magic. Nothing mm. comes alive for you. So our task is to take the latest useful um, set of ideas and information and make them come alive for people. And often that comes down to humor, storytelling, and metaphor. How much do you read? An awful lot. Uh, and I'll tell you a, a new little habit that I've added to my life in the last few years is the Audible app. I don't know if you've come across that one, John. Yep. Yeah, I listen to audiobooks everywhere that I go. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I'll, I'll be driving, gym, in the bath, particularly uninspiring lovemaking sessions. What, what <laughs> <is that>? uh, <laughs> I'll just have a book on in the background. Um, and, and it's life-changing. You know, I, I, I've always read a lot. That's been a, a lifetime habit of mine. But I'd say that I've easily tripled or quadrupled the mm. amount of information I take in that way. So, to the extent now that I, I often don't listen to music wherever I go, sure. I simply be listening to a book. I was told once when I was a runner, I was a runner for a very short time in my life, and I was listening to music, and it was fine. But was that one? Yeah, that, that time that I ran. Yeah. And I remember that time, yeah. A, a mate of mine said to me, why don't you listen to a book while you run? And I thought it was the strangest thing ever. But then I put mm. it on, and there's suddenly you know an hour out on the road or 45 minutes, whatever it is. Instead of just wasting time listening to Metallica, suddenly <laughs> I was I was, I was was listening to, to informational books, learning stuff. Yeah. And it was amazed how well, much... We debate whether or not Metallica is an investment, and uh, you know, I know where I fall about <laughs> that. But, uh, but it, it really is a great idea. And I'll tell you what else I found very useful about it is very long trips. Uh, speakers spend a lot of time out on the road uh, driving to venues. And I find that it is better at keeping you mentally alert because when you're listening to a book, there is a progressive line of thought or of story and you don't drift off as easily as you would to music. Right. Um, so that's just one of the other upsides to it. Yeah, and you've got to concentrate as well, which is nice. Absolutely, yeah. It keeps you going. Without you working particularly hard at it, oh. your mind is keeping up with a certain line of thinking. I remember, I, I know it's not an educational book, but I, was, I listened to Psycho once when I was driving on my way to holiday. It was still on cassette oh, tape. But it, it, it sticks with you. And I also, what is it? I mean, I'm just telling, telling my story here quickly. I'm supposed to be talking about you. But uh, the girl that played with fire, you know, the girl books? The girl yes. played with the hornet's nest, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, it was read by a guy, but it was so well read that you could actually see the characters in your head you know it oh, wasn't fantastic. they didn't change you know he didn't change his voice too much it was just enough so you could hear it was an old guy or a girl or whatever it was yeah so, yeah so it's worth doing that find find audiobooks yeah. uh just picking up on something that you said there um I, i've started listening to spanish books now. It's, it's a language that I'm, I'm trying to learn right and i i got hold of harry potter read in espanol for mm -hmm. some bizarre reason and it's a great book, and it's wonderful for learning the language, but the, the narrator didn't do what you just mentioned there, the subtle change of voices. Instead, yeah. he went cartoon, and it was, you know, dursley said, and then this incredibly <laughs> syrupy, over-the-top cartoon, but it's almost unlistenable. Right. <laughs> and, and you pick, a bit of challenge. Did you pick up the language from that? 
I, I have been, yes. My, my Spanish is very basic, um, and that, that's a fairly advanced book in terms of, of the learning. So I started off with little guides, um, and then you get um, basic Spanish storybooks for beginners and so on. But it's ex- extremely useful just to hear the spoken Espanol. Good idea. I like that. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about these awards you've won. South African Championships for Public Speaking. I don't understand how you can win yeah. that. What, how does that work? Okay, so it's hosted by a group called Toastmasters International, and uh, most people have probably come across the name somewhere, but it's a bit of a misleading name. You you hear Toastmasters, it doesn't inherently say what it is. It's the world's largest non-profit group for training public speaking. Uh, They train public speaking and leadership, and they have clubs all over the world. And they did a a little youth leadership course in my, uh, my high school. I discovered at the time it was something I quite enjoyed. I was an extreme introvert. I found that there was something wonderful about having the space to prepare your thoughts backstage, to to put together the best of you, and then when you're ready, to step onto the stage and deliver the the best, most polished version of yourself and of your thinking. And um, when I turned 18, I joined a local club just to add something to my CV. I wasn't even aware that there was such a thing as a championships for, and even a a world championships for public speaking. Um, and you work your way up, up uh, some six different levels of context. If you win at your club, you go up against four clubs in your area. And um, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to have won our Southern African Championships on five occasions. And that then leads to a semifinals, uh, usually in the States. Uh, it now, nowadays, it moves around the world. And then to a, to a finals. Um, 2004, I managed to play second in the world, which uh, so far is the best anyone from Africa has done. Um, but we still need someone from Africa to take that top spot. But yes, there's a, there's a world champs, and, and it happens every year. What do you talk about? That, they, they do not prescribe that for you, so that's entirely up to you. I mean, sure. you, can, you can step up on stage and speak about the mating habits of iguanas if you want to, but you're unlikely to win. The kind of thing that tends to win will be very much motivational in nature, uh, something inspiring, something fairly broadly applicable, and generally speaking, you'll find that the the presentations that mix a good deal of humor with a a fair dollop of emotion tend to be the ones that the judges like. Um, And it's a five to seven minute presentation, so it is incredibly tightly choreographed. Uh, You you think they're of a a word-perfect presentation that's, I mean, it's it's actually choreographed almost down to the level of the gestures. It, It really has to be Pretty much perfect. Sure. Do you? Yeah. So, are you like like a like a Shakespearean actor when you go on stage? You've got your script and your directions before you go on. How much is sort of made up while you're there? Yeah. In, in fact, that's actually an interesting dynamic that you've touched on there. I there's a, there's a bit of that that I had to unlearn as a professional keynote speaker uh, because in Toastmasters, you know, you're trying to appeal to a set of judges at a World Championships for contests for public speaking, and in such a scenario, obviously it has to be tightly scripted and choreographed. Now, you can do that in a five- to seven-minute contest, but there is no way you can get away with that in an hour-long presentation. Mm. It, would, it would look and feel false, mm. um, and it, in fact, it would be exhausting for both you and the audience. So what I find is I, I tend to kind of slip in and out of patterns. And what I mean by that is when I'm having a moment in which I'm, I'm sincerely just talking to the audience, there is no choreography going on there. Um, I, I literally stand front and center, and it's, it's kind of a, a heartfelt, I'm engaging with you, this is what I have to say. Then I will typically transition into a story that makes that point and makes it come alive. And I find that there, the, the kind of sense of body language, and I, I don't know if acting is the right word, but it's leaning towards theater, tends to come naturally, and then you go from that back into just chatting on an honest level with the audience. Mm. So the training has come, come in useful, 
but there is a degree to which you have to soften it and loosen it up, if that, uh, if that makes sense. Modern, I want to say, stand-up comedians are sort of, you know, they, it's not just jokes anymore. They're, they're, they're quite serious. I know John Vlissmus yeah. is doing a show now that's actually very serious, talks about death and things. How are mm. you different, in a way, from a stand-up comedian who does more or less the same kind of thing? Yeah, you know, that, that's a very interesting question, and there are specific answers to it. In many ways, comedians are actually under a lot more pressure than us when they perform live on stage. And the reason for that is, typically speaking, a comedian needs to get a laugh every 10 to 15 seconds. Mm. And when you actually think about that over the course of half an hour to an hour of stand-up comedy, that is an astonishing amount of pressure to put on a person. If you get into the zone, if the audience is going with you, brilliant. If you do not, that is a living hell. Uh, so that the pressure, the onus on them is phenomenal. We have a little bit more leeway in the sense that if we dabble in humor, we try something out, and it doesn't work. It doesn't particularly matter. We move on to our point. One or two people in the audience maybe got it. They got something out of it. But we're there for the ideas. We're there for the impact upon lives. So that's the, the area in which it's harder on comedians than on us. Now, here's where it's harder on us. We have to have the latest research, the latest Mm. ideas, and they must be impactful. We can't simply walk away having entertained. We have to walk away having enriched, having educated, having hopefully transformed lives in some useful and productive way. Now, the similarities there are you're both standing on a stage in front of a group of human beings making ideas come alive primarily through storytelling. And you find if you really dissect what we do and what comedians do, most of it boils down to Tell a story, make a point. Tell another story, make another point. Okay. Um, mm. uh, have you done a TED Talk yet? I haven't done TED. I've done something called Pecha Kucha, which is quite a terrifying format for speakers. <laughs> what they do there is they give you 20 slides and 20 seconds per slide. Mm. Uh, so you, you've actually got the slides automated, and they do not wait for you. And it's a, it's a fascinating format in the sense that the speakers then have to keep up with their own ideas. You literally have a sentence to two sentences per slide, and then it changes and you move on. Sure. And if you're not ready, well, off it goes at a, at a clip. The great thing about a Pechacucha evening is that you, you get kind of the equivalent of TED, but it is extremely fast. Uh. Um, and if you don't enjoy a speaker, well, you know, stand by, they're almost done. <laughs> I've done a couple of those, and they host them at um, uh, Scoop's Bookstore in Montecino right. every now and then. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're all around the world, like the TED Talk, so you know, if it's something that interests you, just check out Pecha mm-hmm. Kucha, which is, I believe, either Japanese or North Korean, I, I forget, for small talk. Um, but it's a fabulous little concept. But uh, but no, I haven't done a TED talk yet. I'd, I'd love to be one of those. One day is one day. All right, you've got. Yeah. I, I've read here that you've got seven books. I count five. So how many books have uh, you okay. really done? Can I clarify? Because it's quite confusing. Oh, go for it. <laughs> okay. T- technically, it's eight. But, but <laughs> let me explain. Okay. Okay. So I had a, a first book published with a, a group down in uh, in Cape Town on public speaking. A very basic little book on on public speaking skills. And that was the beginning and end of the relationship with that particular publisher. So that was number one. Then I did a self-published book. So we're probably not going to count that one. Let's leave it out. After that, I started a relationship with Penguin, and we have now released six books, 
and the seventh one comes out in August. Okay. So that's seven commercially published with Penguin and the eighth one commercially published with the previous group. Okay. Um, yeah. Is, when, you, when you release a book like Is Your Thinking Keeping You Poor, do you, mm. is there a moment when you think maybe I should have called it something else like How to Be Rich? <laughs> John, you, you actually have... That, that's very insightful of you, because most of the books on wealth literature take that more positive approach, and that one sounds vaguely accusatory. Yes. Yes. So there is a difference between that book, I like to believe, and a lot of the other you-can-be-a-millionaire mm. kinds of books. And it, it was specific and it was intentional. My thought process on that one is that a lot of the research behind what differentiates self-made millionaires as compared to people who get stuck in generational cycles of poverty, tends to be politically incorrect answers. Um, And there is a lot of politically uh, correct nicety that does the rounds in this particular sphere, and I feel does a lot of damage. I'll just give you one off the top of my head, which is, you know, complete the phrase, everyone's heard it a million times, the rich are getting richer and... Poor are getting poorer. Poor are getting poorer. Okay, it's not true. The research on economics over the last hundred years shows that over the past century, more people have been elevated out of poverty and into the middle class, both as a number in terms of millions of human beings and, and this is, this is crucial, as a proportion, as a percentage of humanity that has ever happened before in all of our history. So now when we, when we glibly say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, we create in the minds of people this frustrating dynamic that the wealthy are taking money out of society and as a result, people are becoming poorer. And the research on that shows that it simply isn't true. Hmm. Now, what I wanted in this particular book was not a kind of a, a glossy, motivational how to make your first million. I wanted real answers from economics that said this is what works and this is what doesn't. Um, and there's a fascinating one from the next book, which, which again follows exactly the same formula. It says, I can give you truth or I can give you political correctness. Mm. I choose to give you truth. Um, and the research starts off by saying that the number one and number two things that lift people out of poverty are work ethic and remaining married if you have children. Now, that's, that's not going to go down well if you're trying to win votes. Yeah. However, yeah. it is the truth and it's useful to know. So, you know, you, you also, when you write these things, you have to say, don't shoot the messenger, but I want you to know what actually works here. Okay, let's talk about you for a little bit. Uh, author mm. and speaker. So you wake up in the morning and you? I, I author and I speak, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> what I do, uh, John, I mentioned the habit earlier of uh, picking up something like a Harvard Business Review of just reading a chapter. I always start my day that way uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. I find it's meditative, it's calming for the mind. Um, and it helps me to keep up to speed with the latest ideas. It also gets me thinking strategically right from the word go. Then most of the rest of your average day is spent marketing. And by marketing, I mean either working on the latest book, which is not going to bring in a large amount of money in South Africa. We, we are a very small market for books. But nevertheless, it's an excellent way of uh, advertising and marketing yourself, of gaining media coverage and right. so forth. Um, and then I'll do things like I, I create a little daily motivational video. Uh, in my particular case, it's called From Amateur to Expert Daily. And it's just a two-minute video with a, with a tip. Um, so typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll create one. I shoot them in my own home against a, a green screen. I'll edit them. I'll release them. And then the rest of the day is spent answering emails, working on chapters of a book, and so forth. Now, that's when I'm not speaking. Um, 
The next logical question from your side would be, how often do you speak? And it's incredibly difficult to answer because it comes and goes. Uh, so you might have one month that's uh, extremely dry, one month where you spend the entire time traveling and you never see your family. Mm. But um, if, if there's such a thing as an average, I, I probably speak or train about three to four times a week. Um, and, you know, viewed from the outside, that looks like a very small amount of time, but it is all-encompassing. So if I have, a say, a keynote for a leadership group, there's a, a great deal of research that goes into understanding what's going wrong in their organization, making sure the keynote is tailored to their needs, traveling there, um, delivering for that hour, speaking with the folks afterwards, and then learning from the experience as well. Every time you present, you want to learn something from it. What keeps you going? I like the idea of of constant refinement of myself. Um, I've been in the industry now uh, with Toastmasters. I've been a speaker for about 20 years. I've been in the professional speaking industry for about 15 and I've been an author now for, I think, about 11 to 10, 11 years now. And I love the idea of constant refinement. At the, at the risk of sounding a bit melodramatic, there's a, a wonderful line from, uh, from an old meatloaf song that goes, there's always something magic, there's always something new. Mm. And I love this idea that you can always refine yourself, hone your craft, and make yourself a better product on the market. Um, and I find that exciting, that there's always a new toy to play with and always a way of improving. Uh, do you have a, a, a quote? I haven't asked this for many of my people. An inspirational quote besides the meatloaf one? Or, uh, besides, besides the meatloaf one. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I'll give you a couple. The first, also from a song, from, from an old Enya song, uh, says, I walk to the horizon and there I find another. <laughs> I love this idea that, that life is often broken down into these, these milestones. You, yeah. you think of this achievement and accolade that you, uh, you've set your mind on, been focusing on for a while. And once you arrive there, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to achieve and you should stop and celebrate. But then there's the next one. And you look ahead and realize there's always more that you can do. And that's, I, I find that wonderful. It, it keeps life exciting. Um, and then one of my own ones, and it comes from one of the books on wealth, is the... Let me just get the, the exact wording on this one. Um, oh gosh, John, you know, no you're, I have no my copy. You see, co- your, your, your internet, when, when you want to show something on the internet, it never works. Have you noticed Yes. That? It's every the time. the video is not going to play for you. That's right. It's like, oh, you've got to see this thing on YouTube. Gotta, okay, wait, I'll get back to you. No, wait, I'll get... <laughs> all right, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. So, so it boils down to the idea that your achievements are not separated from you by a matter of years, but mm-hmm. rather by a number of actions. Um, and that's a very empowering thought. It's to say that whatever your ideal version, your ideal outcome is for yourself, it's not a five-year goal, it's not a ten-year goal, it's a number of steps. And that puts the ball back in your court. It, uh, it begs the question, when will you take the first one? And again, that's something that, uh, that I find drives me and that I find inspiring. Okay, um if somebody wants to be, you know, somebody sitting there going, I'd love to be a speaker, but I don't have any stories. I don't have anything mm. to say. Does that mean, okay, I'm not going to be a speaker. Forget it. I'll go and be an accountant. Oh, no, stop right there. There's an easy way around that. You don't have to have climbed a mountain, swum a river. You don't have to have fended off a flock of wild cheerleaders. Um, stories tend to be very close to home things. So give me a quick example. When I stand up and speak on business innovation, one of my stories will be drawn from Game of Thrones. That's not my story. I'm simply quoting something that displayed a principle, and yet it makes the principle come alive. Mm. The next story comes from the, uh, the Israeli Defense Force and something clever that they do in terms of their thinking and their management. The story after that will be something that my two-year-old once said to me. 
So stories do not have to take the form of one day while I was forging a path through the jungle. Mm. They are just illustrative ideas. Anything that creates movement and wonder in the imagination qualifies as a story. And you can draw it from anywhere. Just be honest about you know, your citation, honest about what you quote. But what you want is this vast imaginary landscape where you draw on imagery from different things. Um, so, you know, you, you can tell stories from all around the world. They can be humorous, they can be moving, or they can simply have business principles behind them. Mm. It's actually funny you, you mentioned this. Uh, a friend and I were talking about this the other day, and he's keen to write a business book. And his question to me was, where do I find enough stories set in business cubicles and in boardrooms? And I said, well, that's the last thing you want to do. You cannot bear an entire book that goes, one, this is what happened in a cubicle, this is what happened in a boardroom. Ultimately, it's boring. It's the principles we want, not the setting. Somebody who hasn't found their passion yet, somebody who's sort of, yeah, I'm always imagining young people waking up now having to walk to school or something and they're listening to this yeah. and they're thinking, all right, what do I want to be when I grow up? What, what advice do you have for them? Do you know, I'm a big fan of, of something that Mike Rowe um, advocates. And Mike Rowe is the guy who presents a show called Dirty Jobs. And mm. as crazy as it sounds, he says, don't follow your passion. He says, <laughs> Become excellent at something useful. And there's something very profound about that. He says, you know, a lot of us spend our time looking at idols, winners, and um, the Hollywood actors and going, well, that's what I want to be. Fine and fair enough if you really have a valid track to that. But his argument is that some of the people doing the background jobs, the dirty jobs that make life possible, are both the happiest and among the wealthiest people that he's met. And of course, course, in his uh, scenario, it's during the U.S., but you look at South Africa, the, the dirty jobs, the things that make life possible, are often the things that are the most undercated to. In our particular uh, sphere, we need very practical skills, and we need people to run those businesses. We need the, the plumbers. We need the people doing the things in the background that make life possible. So, you know, there is so much money to be made in the non-glamorous things. And what I, I kind of advocate is I say, you know, it doesn't matter which particular thing you, you chase. What matters is the person you become chasing it. Develop that sense of excellence, whatever it is that you do. And no, no skill that you learn is ever wasted. I mean, if you, if you go and pursue something that um, you know, doesn't necessarily feel like the dream of becoming a, an X-factor winner, yeah. you are nevertheless picking up skills that teach you something about how to be more successful in life. Go for it. Douglas, in less than 30 seconds, one place where people can find you and get your details and all those things. Lovely. On every social media platform, uh, the daily video is called From Amateur to Expert Daily, and every single one of them is available at douglaskruger.com. Douglas Kruger, thanks very much for that. Douglas Kruger CSP, which stands for, remind me again, it's written down here, I can't find it again. It's, it's all right. Like, yeah. Thank you very much, Douglas Kruger, our special guest today in the Get Up and Go. As you heard, douglaskruger.com and uh, all those details are available on the website. Go have a look.